Welcome to Nomina's Mental Health Mavens. I'm your host, Joanne, and every Sunday we bring you mental health and addictions experts on a variety of topics, including advanced evidence-based therapies. Now, guest opinions are their own and some content may be triggering, but our mission here and on our Nomina Wellness YouTube channel is to make exceptional mental health support accessible to everyone. So make sure to subscribe, give us that good rating, and maybe even share with a friend. So let's get to it. Welcome to today's episode of Mental Health Mavens, and we are once again talking to Lisa Calco. Now, Lisa is a registered sex therapist, and just a bit of a trigger warning because she is talking to us today about sexual choking. So with that, let's welcome Lisa. Well, welcome back, Lisa. And today's topic is a therapist explains sexual choking. And I did a trigger warning in the intro, so feel free to go nuts. Let's just have a great conversation about this one. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think it's something that is so commonly misunderstood and it is a sexual practice that a lot of people don't know about. Um, And what we're finding is that a lot of people are learning about it through the modern access to pornography. And so what they're seeing in pornography doesn't necessarily match what is safe practices when it comes to those types of things. Well, let's let's dig in and just talk about the difference maybe between what we see in porn and what is um, pleasurable in terms of sex. Yeah. So, I mean, erotic asphyxiation is something that does happen. Oftentimes, you know, even looking at autoerotic asphyxiation, you know, it's been happening since even, you know, as early as the first noted cases in the 17th century, you know, looking at that as a practice, it's the deprivation of oxygen that can sometimes increase the orgasmic response or the feelings that would accompany that of that heightened orgasmic response. So it's something that, you know, in terms of looking at for the recipient can be pleasurable And equally for the person who's participating in that same act, there are oftentimes, you know, these power dynamics at play where the the charge that happens from being in that specific act can feel very arousing from that power dynamic. However, my big caveat and warning to this is that it needs to be a mutually consented, you know, respectful process for both humans participating in the sense that that power dynamic is something that is so important to respect when we're engaging in any sort of asphyxiation or any sort of sexual play that involves high-risk behaviors. So the the dichotomy, the, the two, the how it can be pleasurable and part of the sex act, but then over on the other side, it can be yeah, an act of power and control. Absolutely. It can be it can be something that people will use, especially if there isn't that consent process around it, because oftentimes people will think, oh, you know, but if we're consenting to it ahead of time, it's not going to have that same arousal response because I'm not going to feel as powerful or it's not going to be as sexy. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. When we look at that and we have safe boundaries, safe conversations, safe understanding, safe words around engaging in any sort of erotic foreplay that does involve a power dynamic. It's something that we know is there. It's something that we have established. It's something that we can then move into with fluidity. And it allows us to have that opportunity to say, is this pleasurable for me? Because then we can also have that post-intercourse response or discussion of like, 
How is that for you? How did that feel for you? What is happening around that? When we're looking at power dynamics, especially in these types of autoerotic behaviors or even erotic behaviors, what we want to know is that, you know, looking at those who are most affected, such as women, sexual minorities, you know, um, people of color, they oftentimes experience those power imbalances and they may not feel as safe disclosing to their intimate partner, hey, this doesn't feel safe or this doesn't feel comfortable. So normalizing that consent process ahead of time is so key. And then when you have that established, you can start to look at, does this actually feel safe for me? Some people might find, yeah, I'm going to be totally keen to do this. They start to do it. And then they realize there's a lot of triggers coming up. That's really important to have those post discussions too. There's probably a number of reasons people would watch this video or listen to this podcast. And that is because they are practicing the autoerotic fixation. Uh, or maybe their partner has asked them to participate in this, or maybe they, they're just worried that what they're doing is wrong. So do you want to address some of those? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, looking at the asphyxiation part, what we know is that people who experience the desire to participate in those types of things is multifaceted. There's lots of reasons people may want to engage in erotic play of this nature. It could be that they're part of a BDSM community. It could be that they're just curious. It could be that they find it sexually engaging. It could be that they have seen it on porn and, you know, they want to take a swing at it. Ultimately, you know, what we want to do is we just want to normalize that safe practice piece and also that healthy consent process, because there's a lot of risks and harms associated with it when we're not careful. People can have injuries. Somebody might even, you know, die, um, you know, whether it be by, you know, autoerotic asphyxiation or even by a partner, it can have heart issues. It can have all sorts of other, you know, ongoing traumas related to it. And so it's really about just kind of looking at checking in with ourselves and our partners and saying, is this safe for me? Why do I want to do this? Is it something that I feel like my partner will participate in? Because we also know looking at the couple's dynamic, when we're having these desires or these interests and we think they're really taboo, we don't want to talk to our loved one about it. When we talk to our loved one about it, we're actually opening up this vulnerability that allows them to say, yeah, you know, I've thought about the same thing, or I might be interested in that too. In which case, then we can have healthy, consensual partnerships together. When we're holding it back, what we find is that sometimes people will start to stray outside their union, or if they're monogamous, then they might start to, to deviate from their primary partner, from the guilt or the shame or the fear around discussing it with them because they might really want to try it and they might not feel safe communicating that. So again, all the more reason why even looking at a video like this, it's about saying, hey, do I feel comfortable and safe enough to be sharing this with my primary partner if I'm monogamous? If your answer is no, then you shouldn't be doing it because then that tells me you may not be ready to be engaging in such a risky activity. If your answer is yes and your partner's not interested in doing it, well, then again, we need to go back to that baseline of what is safe? What do I want to participate in? And is there some way I can set up some healthy boundaries around that to protect everyone? Here's a question. What are the, I know there's different types, 
So what are the different types of sexual choking? Choking, you know, is oftentimes a form of strangulation. And, you know, we we need to look at that in terms of there can be violent strangulation that can happen, which is really unsafe. We know that there can be lighter forms such as scarfing, where they use a scarf to restrict breathing. Um, You know, we know that in other forms, you know, it can just be an erotic type of asphyxiation where they might smother someone, they might face it, they might restrict, you know, just different ways of restricting someone's oxygen supply, such as with a pillow, the ball gag. Yeah, a ball gag, all of these kinds of things, right? And then we also know that there can be lighter forms of it, you know, so there can be people who kind of just try and do different things to, to just soften that, you know, where it could be a lighter pressure on the neck or various things. Holding your breath can actually help heighten that sexual pleasure as well too, prior to orgasm. Exactly. And I think, you know, the thing about it is it does need to be practiced with clear boundaries, healthy communication signals, you know, all the things put into place to make sure that it's not a harmful act to the participant. And truthfully, and this is where we know that people are just going to be curious because as we've had increased access to things like pornography, our sexual appetites have changed, our interests have changed, what we think is normal has changed, our arousal template has changed. And so we want to continue to really be aware of ourselves and our partners and having those dialogues around what is safe, what is consensual, what do we agree to, what do we both need to achieve healthy, balanced pleasure. I love where the time that we live in, because, you know, especially my generation, we didn't have the porn, but we did, we did talk a lot more. Like I look at my son and my son grew up with access to that. Right. So in my particular generation, we, we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun. We got to experiment, but we didn't have hardcore pornography to set us up for failure with it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the thing of it is, is that a lot of people now are starting to learn even through, you know, this hardcore pornography that, you know, there can be safe ways of which to practice choking. And we just need to be really clear that choking in and of itself is not a safe practice. That's the part that tends to kind of have that excitatory response, which is I'm doing something taboo. I'm doing something that can be, you know, on that edge or fringy. You know, and there's a lot of people within the BDSM community or other sort of communities who practice within, you know, safe sex practices. And I'm not looking to minimize that because they really do put a lot of things into place. But it's also about acknowledging that, you know, we're looking at safety for choking. We're looking at really just harm reduction. It's it's kind of, you know, looking at even drug use, like drug use may not be safe, but how can we do it in the safest way possible to reduce harm? It's very much the same when we're looking at something like choking. I'm not going to ever say that choking is a safe practice. It's not. But we can say there are ways we can reduce the harm to ensure that we're doing it in the safest way possible to help our humans. Because at the end of the day, people are going to do it. They've been doing it for centuries, you know, probably even millennia. How do we do so in a way that really respects and normalizes what the arousal system is doing because we're in the advent now or in the day rather of pornography. This is a thing. So we can't change that. Well, maybe we could, but we're probably not going to in the short term, at least not in my lifetime. So how do we do so in a way that really respects where we're at? Any tips for safety? So the first one is always consent, consent, consent. 
I cannot stress that enough. I mean, choking your partner without consent can have really severe legal consequences. It can have other health consequences. Making sure that your intimate partner isn't one of those higher risk people, i.e. is there a risk of heart disease? Is there a risk of you know um, decreased oxygenation? Is there concern around brain injuries or pre- previous traumatic brain injuries? This is where you should never engage in a practice like that without knowing your intimate partner. That's where it's going to actually create a lot more of that safety and reduce that harm just by having this honest dialogue again. Also, just looking at, you know, what does feel authentic for each person. So when we're losing consciousness, you know, if we're choking to the point of losing consciousness, there is a possibility that they may have, you know, disorientation. They may have a lack of coordination. They can have changes, you know, in their vision potentially. They may even suffer from a stroke or, you know, a fractured thyroid or a fractured bone rather. So there can be mechanical damage to our neck structure or a serious injury if we're not careful. And that's where we really want to be careful or be sure when we are doing this, that we're doing so in a way that is really consent-based and very, very clear because it's very hard for somebody who's losing consciousness to be indicating in the same way. Okay. So possibly besides a safe word, a safe, um, physical movement that we can do. Yeah. Movement or something. And just, this is again, where I would recommend if we're going to be engaging in these practices, we do so with people who we feel trusted with, we feel safe with, we feel like we have, you know, a really honest, you know, dialogue with, because that's going to be so important for checking in both pre, during, and post. Now, what about uh, self-sexual choking? Is there any uh, tips around safety for that? Because that's where you hear a lot of people that have died doing that. Yeah. And so even in self-choking, you know, the, the rates, I mean, there's been, you know, even if you Google it, you know, there's lots of celebrities even who have died from autoerotic asphyxiation. Um, you know, that is something where it is a much more, risky process. And so, you know, safe tips, I would actually be remiss to even suggest that it is something that should be done independently. Um, And if you're going to do it independently again, well, that's where I would suggest that you have somebody who you feel safe with to say, okay, I want you to check on me in 20 minutes, or I want you to check Like, you know, if you're going to do that, be forthright with yourself enough to acknowledge to your trusted people, this is of sexual interest to me. And if I'm going to engage in it, I want to make sure I have a healthy framework around it. Yeah. And we do live in a, in a day and age where it's okay. It's okay. We all have our things and we're talking about it more. That's the whole point of these videos is we're talking about it. Exactly. And it's really just about knowing, you know, what is safe for you may not be safe for someone else. And so that's where we want to be very explicit in our conversations around that rather than making implicit assumptions. It's like, well, we did it once before, so it should be okay today. Maybe it's not okay today. Or maybe it's just, you know, maybe it's okay next week and not okay today. So having very explicit conversations around that and normalizing, as you said, that's why we're having this talk about it today. It's because we know it's happening. It's been happening for, you know, for a long time. How do we make it a practice that people are going to bring out of the shadows and into the actual dialogue? And then I guess the last piece that I'd really like to talk about is, again, those um, sexual predators and uh, and the difference between consensual fun play and being hurt. 
Yeah. And this is where, again, in these types of environments, and especially those who practice with, you know, safe words, those who practice in healthy communities. And again, I don't want to take this away from, there are amazing BDSM communities, there are amazing role play communities, there are amazing, you know, fetish communities, there are amazing fringe communities, kink communities who practice with really healthy ways of existing and having consensual dialogue. Equally, in these types of realms, there are a lot of people who practice it with a bit more of a a negative intent. It can become a very powerful stimulus. It can be something, it's something that is used to display violence or to display power and control and or to display, you know, harmful behaviors towards another person. Yeah, because I think at the Tinder community and and those people that that engage in, you know, consensual sex and and are just very free about it. And mm-hmm. you know, you go for a hookup and next thing you know, he's choking you and you're not okay with that and it feels wrong and it feels violent and there's trauma now as a result of that. And, and that's where it's, you know, it's really, really important that you have, you know, an established relationship or an understanding or clear parameters, or even, you know, kind of working with healthy dialogue around it, because working, you know, in those types of communities, for example, you might know like, Hey, is this person trained in CPR? Do they understand, you know, healthy practices around, you know, my sexual behaviors or interactions are they comfortable and familiar with choking? Is it something that I feel safe to do with them as opposed to meeting the Tinder hookup and doing it? Um, you know, some people even go as far as to say, hey, we want to have practice CPR ahead of time. What is our time limit after unconsciousness? Is it a minute? Is it 30 seconds? You know, how how long until we, you know, reawaken you? Where we're looking at anything like this that is more fringy, it really does need to have a far greater dialogue around it as we keep going back to that communication, communication, communication. But I keep reemphasizing that because it is so important. When we're meeting the Tinder hookup and then all of a sudden we're engaging in this kind of sexual activity, that's where, you know, your spidey sense is going to usually tell you, do I feel safe? And if you don't feel safe, then don't go there. And by that, I mean, not necessarily on the date because you might not know until you're on the date, but more in the vantage of on that date, you know, trusting your gut. If it doesn't feel like it's a safe environment, then having that backup plan, even before you go on that date, you know, connect with a friend and be like, Hey, I might just text you to call me. Or, you know, if you don't hear from me 30 minutes into the date, can you, can you call me, you know, just having those kinds of parameters around what is my exit strategy? What is my off ramp? How do I, you know, kind of, if I'm not sure, even if you went into the date thinking you wanted to hook up with this amazing, beautiful human who you're there with, and then you get there and you're like, my spidey sense is telling me I don't feel so safe. Always having that backup strategy because in the online dating world, you know, there could be people catfishing, there could be people doing all kinds of different things and we won't know until we get there. So that's where, again, it's safety, safety, safety. How do we set you up for success so that you can enjoy the deepest, fullest, most erotic parts of you? Anything that you feel like we've missed? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the biggest thing is just looking at, when we are engaging in something such as choking, you know, and really just having the the safety around that, you know, is it okay they come from behind? Is it okay they come from in front? You know, what is, you know, so having that kind of rehearsal about it and that guided discussion around it. And again, 
I acknowledge having that discussion might feel very anticlimactic. It might feel very, you know, kind of boring, if you will, to be like, I don't want to talk about the things that I want you to do to me sexually. But if you're going to be engaging in these types of activities, having those healthy dialogues ahead of time is the sexy part. It breaks down the taboo. And oftentimes, you know, for those who are looking at it from that, well, it might not feel as powerful or it might not feel as exciting or it might not be, well, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it. And I say that just in the vantage of if you don't feel comfortable talking about it ahead of time with your intimate partner, then the arousal response you're getting from it might be related to that power and control that is a very unhealthy arousal pattern to feed. We really want to do so in a way that allows you to feel supported, safe, secure. And if it doesn't, then don't do it. Yeah. And it builds intimacy or I found it builds intimacy to talk about these things and, and talk about it in, in a cuddly environment, you know, post-coital or pre-coital and, you know, for, but then again, I'm a woman, I need that intimacy before I can become physically intimate. Definitely. And that's, again, it's part of that piece of each person's different, you know, so how you show up to this one might look different than how you show up to the next one. What it is you want from that is going to be very different as well. And, you know, it might've worked today and it might not work tomorrow. So having that healthy communication around it and being able to know what your safe words are, being able to know what best practices are, are also important. Um, Just in terms of looking at Aftercare, when it comes to choking, you know, some of the things that you really want to be aware of is just looking at any sort of bruising, any sort of, you know, um, you know, feeling within yourself that says, you know, was it okay for me? Did it not feel okay? Having that coddling afterwards, touching, you know, engaging with one another's bodies, maybe having a meal and spending time, you know, together really gives you the opportunity to close that feedback loop of pleasure. And really just understanding that your intimate partner cares about you. They're there to participate with you. You feel safe following. That's going to go so much further than the act itself. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. It's always a pleasure to see you. 